0: Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace. Um, Before I dive into our conversation today, we need to just pause and take a hard look at these service times. Grab your programs real quick. If you're out in the cafe, grab your programs out there. And uh, next weekend is the week that we're changing service times, okay? So they're going to change on Saturday as well. You may want to make a personal commitment to God Himself and start going to church on Saturday nights. That's what Jesus would do. And I um, <laughs> encourage you to do that, uh, so 5 and 6.45, and then on Sundays, 9 and 10.45, and what we're doing is we're prepping up for the extension. So if you've been around, uh, we've been talking about the extension for a year and a half. It's uh, getting ready, the construction's wrapping up, and uh, we're going to be ready to launch it this fall, uh, uh, just as planned. And so this fall, uh, in October, first part of October, the extension is going to open, When it opens, we're gonna add two more services. So we're going from five to four to six. Got that? Sounds like a baseball play. So five to four to six, and uh, that will be then the way that we run here for uh, a while. Okay, so grab those times, kind of drill them down. It's gonna cause a pinch on Sunday, uh, and that's fine. Saturday nights, there are seats and fun, and we have a blast there, and we pay everybody $100 if they come on Saturday night. Um, but you'll, you'll love that, same services, everything's mirrored, and then a bunch of you are gearing up to go to the extension, which we're really, really excited about, so when it opens, uh, several hundred of us will move over there, and uh, the extension of the Bath Campus will be going, okay? So all this is like, been talking about, it, it's all like becoming realities. Summertime is the least intrusive time for us to, uh, to shift everything around, so that's why we're doing it, and it's going to hit next weekend, okay? So uh, just remember that. And uh, look forward to seeing you then. We're in the middle of a conversation right now called Half of Me is Invisible. And in this conversation, uh, we've been talking about how the invisible parts of me are the, are the real me. We kind of know that about ourselves. And when we describe ourselves after we get over the surfacey things, like I'm hot, I'm beautiful, I'm built like a, a Greek god, you know, this is just my email profile. But if you, if once we're past that and we start talking about ourselves, we're, we're, we're talking about our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, right? It's the invisible part of, of who we are. And we all kind of know that it, the Bible would say our soul, right, that we're more spiritual than we are anything else in our lives. And when the Bible speaks, then it's speaking to that greater reality of the invisible part of, of who we are. In the Bible, God goes on and He expands that reality, so to say, and He says actually the world works like this, that the world is more spiritual than it is anything else, and that our struggles in the world are not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, powers, even forces of the dark realm. So, th- so this invisible reality that we all kind of know, know about, interact with is a very, very real thing. So we've been talking about that. Uh, we talked about ourselves a little bit, and then we talked about angels and demons. Uh, last weekend, we talked about heaven and what that's like, what it's, what it's not like. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to talk to you about hell, what it's like, what it's not like. And then next weekend, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and who He is and, and what He's like and, and not like. So uh, I encourage you, more than maybe a usual set of conversations, if you've missed these, go out online, uh, graceoha.org, and you can watch these conversations or listen to them, get a podcast for free and fill in these blanks, because we've been covering enormous amounts of ground in a very, very short time. It's impossible to kind of work these things all the way through. So I've been kind of information dumping to you, which we don't usually do here at Grace, but felt like we should on this one. And so all the information is kind of there, but you're gonna have to take it and marinate in it and process a little bit deeper. I encourage you to do that, because it's really good to have your your hands around um, these ideas. So this weekend we're gonna talk about hell. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about hell in the same kind of format that we've been talking about these other things uh, through the kind of the North American Western perspectives of hell. So we're going we're gonna to cover it generally in the Bible. There's a ton in the Bible about hell. It's different in the Old Testament than it is the New Testament. I'm not going to get into all those weeds. It's impossible to do it in this format. And we're not going to chase down every other faith or religious idea about hell, uh, we're just going to zero in exactly with what the Bible says. But I, I want to talk to you about it more through how we would tend to think about it as North American Westerners, okay? And then we'll get into what the Bible says and, and kind of go from there. So as, as an, in North America, in our culture, when we talk about hell, uh, hell usually comes up in conversations in a couple of ways. One is like the cartoony version of hell, right? So Satan and horns and a pitchfork and a red suit and like everybody's down in hell and it's hot and the air conditioning broke, kind of a thing, right? Or um, we'll talk about it like uh, my friends are gonna go to hell and I'm gonna go party in hell with them. And it's it's kind of a cartoony, we don't usually mean it, it's just what we say. It's kind of a cartoony version of goody two-shoes people go to heaven and go to church for all of eternity. And bad party people go to hell and drink and ride Harleys. And, well, you wouldn't ride a Harley in hell, a Honda probably in hell for, for all of eternity. And, and so we'll kind of do that, you know, we'll kind of talk about it that way and laugh about it a little bit. And that, that's, a, that's actually a major concept of hell uh, over there that if you hear conversations or listen to movies or TV, that kind of is kind of the cultural norm. The serious version of hell that's most culturally normal is the idea that there are really, really, really immoral people in the world. And what we'll do is we will set kind of our moral standard where we think it should be. And then we will look at those people and say, if you don't hit that moral standard, then you're the one that fries in hell, right? So Adolf Hitler is in hell. Joseph Stalin's in hell. Saddam Hussein's in hell kind of thing. And we would look and say these guys like killed millions of people, they cross some kind of a threshold that is just intolerable and they're getting theirs in hell. And that's how we'll tend to talk about hell in a serious way when when we're talking about it. Then what we'll do individually is we'll move that moral standard to whomever has hurt us or our family. So this this person like attack my family, they're gonna burn in hell. My ex is gonna burn in hell. This guy uh, hurt children. He's going to go to hell for that, right? So we'll kind of we'll move that moral standard that way so that when whatever we determine is the moral threshold, like if you just cross like that line, you're the, you're the people that go to hell, okay? And those are the two predominant ideas that get talked about the, the most in, in our culture. There's a third one that kind of hovers under the surface a little bit that, that's newer and it's the idea that we're, that earth is hell. And so when we die, everybody goes to heaven and we escape the hell that is our human existence, okay? And that one's kind of emerging a little bit. It's wrong. You'll hear some people that will say it's in the Bible. They're wrong about that, uh, but it's kind of out there a little bit if, you, if you've heard that. So those two or three ideas are, the, are kind of the predominant view of hell and, and what, what it's like and how it's supposed to work in, a, in our culture. Now, what does the Bible have to say about that then? And so I want to I do this a little bit. Let, let's dig into the Bible and just see like, God's descriptors of hell, and then, and then talk about how that should flesh out for us. So I put this in your notes. You can look at it if, uh, if you want to. I, I just wrote down, what is hell? Well, the Bible, first of all, would say this, that hell is a literal place in which the inhabitants cannot access God or his love. So hell is a literal place. It's not just a concept. It's not earth. It's not those things. It's a literal place where people actually go. There are people in hell now, using hell as a general term. There's people in hell now, um, and they're they're suffering, and uh, it really does exist and will continue to exist. Okay, so just like heaven is a literal place, there are real people in heaven now. Hell is a literal place. There are real people there. What's it like? The Bible would describe hell as a place of torment, kind of general torment. So there's two terms and ideas that the New Testament uses. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with it, but the idea of Hades or hell is this idea of torment for people who have rejected God and now are cut off from Him and access to His love. Jesus actually gives us um, a glimpse of this, a descriptor of this, in Luke chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles, go there with me real quick chapter 16, if you need the Bible, there's something there in the chairs, it's page 730, and the Bible's in the chairs. And if you're electronic, then we use the U version app, Y-O-U version. You can download that app or open it, and our, our, uh, you hit live, our zip code's 44333, we're Grace Church. Okay, so Jesus uses this descriptor, it gives us a little bit of an idea of what it would be like for someone who's being tormented in hell. Uh, Verse 19, chapter 16, Luke, there was a a rich man who was dressed in purple and in fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Uh, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side so that those who, cannot go, those who want to go from, from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen, listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. And Jesus is giving a descriptor of what it's like to be in hell. What he's not saying is that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's a total misread. And if somebody wrote a book that you read about that, they're wrong. Uh, what, what he's saying is this, that externally on earth, you can look like you have nothing, But if your heart is locked into God, there is reward, there is comfort. Death is the great revealer of reality. So you can look on Earth and say, well, God must have abandoned Lazarus, and God's like, no, not at all. Look, he's he's with me forever, reality is. Or you can look on Earth and say, well, this guy's got everything. God must be blessing him. No, not at all. Death reveals reality. His heart, he lived independently from God, and now he's separated from God forever in this place of torment, okay? And then you get to the descriptors, you hear him talking back and forth and saying, listen, this, this is miserable, I'm in agony, I thirst, I have regret, would you do something about this? And Abraham in the story in essence says, "It it's too late, it's too late. Uh, your eternal destiny has been defined. The Bible says today is the day of salvation, so we set the trajectory of our eternal destiny on earth, and you lived independently from God, Lazarus didn't, and now we're, we're locked into this. So from this description and others, we can, we can get a, a, a glimpse of what hell is like. Hell is a place of unspeakable torment. Uh, there is fire, there is fear, there is falling, there is thirst. There's anxiety, there's regret, there is pain. If you think back to heaven, or if you listen to that conversation online, heaven is us being in the presence of God where every longing and yearning of the human soul and condition is forever and fully satisfied. There is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more insecurity, there's everything I long and need on the deepest levels of who I am because I'm with God, well hell, you invert it because I'm removed from God. So even our time here, on even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you still benefit from the love and the grace of God just by the fact that you like, took a breath today, right? Because everything that's good comes down from heaven. So when I'm cut off and I'm removed from God and his love, then all of the things that I hate or fear or I'm anxious about in life amplify then to, the, to an unimaginable state because there is no presence or benefit of God in my life. And so those things define me, fear, anxiety, pain, agony, suffering, regret, define me, okay? Now there's people in hell now, their souls are in hell, and and they're now, and just like in heaven, the people who are in heaven, their souls are in heaven, they they are in spirit form, but they, they respond to the human experience. So they have a memory. They can talk, they can, they can think, they can touch, they can feel, they can thirst, they can experience emotion, they can regret, they can wish for something else, okay? And that is the reality of being separated from God. And so this is, this is hell. And people in hell are very much aware of their condition. By the way, everyone in hell believes in Jesus Christ. Now, every single one of them. Uh, they, they know that Christ is God. They know that he is the only path to the forgiveness of sin. Uh, they know that he provided a way of escape, and they know they didn't take it. And every single person in hell will one day <clears throat> stand before him, and every one of them will, will admit that he is God. Philippians tells us this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Adolf Hitler will bow his knee before Jesus and call him God. And so will Stalin, and so will Saddam Hussein, and so will whoever, you know, we think should have gone to hell. All of that question is removed for them. They're crystal clear about it. And they're crystal clear about the truth of the Bible, and crystal clear about uh, where they should have placed their faith. The, the, the regret is it's too late, it's too late, right? So every person is accountable to God, the Bible says, Romans 1, no, there's no denying that God is who he is, and it's too late. The trajectory of my eternity has been set, and, and I, I, I know now, I don't question, I don't have any argument anymore, all my arrogance is gone, but I can't do anything about it, and I'm, I'm locked in. Okay, so hell, it, it's, it's beyond description. As much as Paul says that, that heaven is beyond comprehension and it's joy and glory and hope and wonder and beauty, hell is beyond comprehension in it's torment and it's destruction and it's death, right? And it's a real place and real people go there and um, God tells us about it, I think in part, to help us warn and tell and to motivate us to, to uh, respond to him. So that's hell. So we, so we could go on and on and on. Like I could go on for like hours describing it. We could get deep, deep into the weeds. But this is what I, what I found with hell. When, when we talk about hell, we're usually, uh, what I've described is like enough, right? The question that, that we all tend to wrestle with when it comes to hell Is does a loving God actually send people to hell? Then, if if it's everything that you're saying, and you're saying that God is a God of love, so you're saying to me that like God throws people into hell and like enjoys it, and like is glad that that happened. Does does a loving God send people to hell? And that tends to be the question that we really get stuck with when it comes to trusting. The, the heart and the mind of God. So I actually want to spend most of our time this weekend digging at that. How do we satisfy that question? All right. In order to, uh, in order to satisfy that question, we have to talk about God. So in order to understand hell, we have to understand God. And, and let's just start here for a minute. Whenever you face a, a question of faith or a question of circumstance in your life, it's, it's a real important tip for you. Never try to answer that question outside of the character of God. So, never look at a set of circumstances in your life and say, This miserable thing happened to me. Where is God? God, you better explain these circumstances to me. You're always going to be left short and left frustrated in that. But if you ask the same thing, This miserable thing happened to me. God, who are you and what are you like? all of a sudden a lot of answers can come to that question. So never, never make the Bible a set of topics that operate independently. The paradigm always has to be the heart and the mind of God. What is God like? And if God's like this, then what does that mean to this conversation? So the same thing's true with hell. Here's hell, there it is, but what is God like? What, it, it, what is this God like that would allow or create or cause a place like that to happen what's the deal with that, okay? So when we talk about God, and, and especially in the perspective of hell, and does a loving God send people to hell, there's two characteristics about God that we have to pin down, okay? And here's the first one. And in fact, I would encourage you to always start your understanding of God with this one. Number one thing you need to know about God is that God loves me and he wants what's best for me. Always, always, always. God loves me and he wants what's best for me. It's a foundational truth. And the Bible tells us this, of course, a thousand times. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we've come to know and believe, that the, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is a God of love. It is thoroughly true of every aspect of his nature, that God loves me, and he wants what's best for me. Now another characteristic of God, there's a bunch of them, but another one that plays in strongly to this conversation of hell is this, that God is absolutely unquestionably a God of love. The other characteristic is that God is just, and, and the Bible tells us that as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse six says that, that God is just. So God is a God of love, and God is a God of justice, And both of those characteristics about God are unyielding. The love of God is unyielding, and the justice of God is unyielding because it's who He is. He can't and won't be something different. So He's fully unyielding a God of love, and He's fully unyielding a God of justice. And by the way, both of those are characteristics that we want about God. We we want those things, right? So we want to know That our creator didn't create us because he was bored. Our creator doesn't set us on the planet and give the planet one big shove and we just exist for no reason. So we want to know that God loves us, that God would give his son for us, that Christ would die for us, that God hears our prayers, that God cares about the details of our life. We want to know and need to know that God loves us. And we also want God to be just, right? So we want that. Um, we, We need to know that there is ultimate justice and that it would apply to my circumstances. So for instance, knowing that God is just is what allows us to forgive. Knowing that God is just is what allows us to release bitterness, right? So if I can look at you and I can say, well, you harmed me and nobody knows about it or nobody cares about it, but you did it, And then God says, but I want you to forgive as you've been forgiven. I can forgive knowing that you're going to face justice. I don't need to apply it to you. You did this to me. I don't need to walk through the rest of my life bitter about it. I can release that bitterness because you're going to face justice because God is just and his justice is unyielding. So I don't need to be a spiteful, vengeful person because God is thoroughly just. And that justice may not play out on this side of life, but certainly it's going to play out because God's justice might be sat- must be satisfied, okay? So we like these two things about God, especially the loved one. The love, God loves you is like awesome. That's, all, that's on all the coffee mugs, the bumper stickers, right? We love that one. God is just, it doesn't play on the t-shirt as well, you know, but, but we like it too. We like it mostly when it applies to someone who we've decided needs justice, right? So we, we want to know, like Hitler didn't get away with it. Stalin didn't get away with it. Saddam Hussein didn't get away with it. Like there is a hell and there is a just God and, and, and they are receiving justice even as we speak. What we don't like is the idea that I won't get away with it, right? Because that unyielding justice applies to me and we'll tend to look at ourselves and say, well, wait a minute, I, I, I'm a good person, right? I'm a good person, I, I don't deserve hell. And God would look and say, actually, yeah, you do. Yeah, you totally do, right? Because I'm a God of justice and you also have violated my justice And that justice must be satisfied. Let me show you here. Flip over your Bibles to the book of Romans, maybe 100 pages or so to the right. Romans chapter 3. And God looks and says, yeah, justice applies to everyone. And everyone has violated my perfect standard of justice. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and all have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. God is a God of justice. He's a just God, and that justice is unyielding, and it's unyielding to Hitler, and it's unyielding to Stalin, and it's unyielding to Jeff, and it's unyielding to you because you have sinned, right? I don't feel like a sinner, but you are. Let me prove it to you. Let's just look at the list here, there's a few things. They practice, tongues practice deceit. Who's ever told a lie, raise your hand. Told a lie, raise your hand, raise your hand. All right, if you didn't raise your hand, you're lying, so now you're in. <laughs> you just signed up for hell, okay. Who, who's, who's full of cursing? Who's, who's ever dropped the F-bomb? Come on, come on, come on. You, I, really, I, right? <laughs> And if you haven't dropped it, you've thought it, okay? So, right, you're, you're, you're in, you're in hell. All right, so who's ever been bitter? Bitter, 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 bitter. Who hates Michigan? Okay? <laughs> I know, bitter, right? So we, we've done it, like, we laugh about it. I mean, that, you just went like three for three on the list and we didn't even get into it. So we, we don't even argue about this, right? That means that you are part of the no one is righteous crowd. God is a God of justice. His justice is perfect. His justice will be satisfied and you have missed the mark. Me too. It's unquestionable. So it's not just Hitler that goes to hell. It's Jeff, right? Because I, I have sinned. In fact, I, don't, I sin on purpose. It's not like I accidentally told a lie or I, once I accidentally had this lustful thought. Come on. We, we know this is true. Let's, let's knock it off. So we know it. We absolutely know it. Right? And it means that we have condemned ourselves to hell. Because God's a God of justice, his justice is unrelenting. Okay? It's part of who he is. Now, what's the other part? God is a God of what? Say it to me. It starts with an L. God is a God of love, right? He loves me and wants what's best for me. And as unrelenting and unyielding as his justice is, his love is equally unyielding so god looks and he's like you guys are like dead meat there's no way that you're going to escape hell but god loves you passionately his love is also unyielding in other words he's going to go all in so because god loves you and loves me unyieldingly he intervenes and this is the rest of the chapter, look at verse 21, chapter three, Romans. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Before before in his forbearance, he had left sins uncommitted, uh, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is a God of justice. That justice is going to be satisfied. God is a God of love. His love is going to be satisfied. So God so loved us that he looked at our sin, looked at his son, said, hey son, will you deal with this for them? They cannot do it. I need you to be an atoning sacrifice. That's a very cool concept that means this. An atonement is someone who comes and pays a debt they did not owe for someone who owes a debt that they cannot pay. Jesus never sinned, was butchered on the cross undeservingly, right? He made atonement, he didn't owe the debt, but he paid the debt for you and I who cannot pay it. He paid a debt he did not owe for those who owe a debt that they cannot pay. He's the atoning sacrifice. So by faith, through grace, I can receive salvation. My debt is alleviated because of Christ and his willingness and his ability to pay it for me. God's justice is satisfied by Jesus. Somebody had to pay it, Jesus did. And his love is satisfied through Jesus. So when I receive or respond to Christ, right, my sins can be forgiven. So the Bible says, that Christ provides a way of escape. There's a way out of hell. Right, let's go back to the question. Does a loving God send people to hell? No. What? I knew he was liberal, he's got flip flops on. No, right? He doesn't need to. We send ourselves to hell. We sin and we do it on purpose. You all, we all know this. We sin on purpose. We violate, God doesn't need our help, right? We do it for ourselves. Does a loving God send people to hell? No, we send ourselves to hell. A loving God provides a way of escape out of hell. He gives his son Jesus. Oh, so everybody goes to heaven? No. Well, why not? If God wishes that none would perish, Bible phrase, He doesn't want anybody to go to hell, and there's a way of escape. Why doesn't God send everybody to heaven? Well, there's a reason why. Let me explain it. The reason why God doesn't send everybody to heaven is because God is a God of relationship. In a relationship, God desires for you and I to love him. Okay, Love cannot be coerced. So I can't make you love me. I have to give you the choice to love me. Relationship requires choice, and choice requires alternatives. I have to be able to say no, right? If I force you to love me, right? That's not something that can happen. If I force you to love me, then I'm not giving you a choice, I'm making you do that. And usually in our culture, if I'm making you love me, there's the police and like restraining orders are involved. Like it's where it gets all really, really creepy. In order to cause you to love me, I have to give you the choice to love me. And if I give you the choice to love me, there has to be an alternative. If there's a yes, there has to be a no. God doesn't force you to love him. He doesn't force you to follow him. He invites you to do that and you and I are left with a choice of whether we're gonna receive that relationship or not. Put it in the context of marriage, right? When, when I asked Heidi to marry me all those years ago, I went to her and I offered her a relationship. I said, hey, I, I would like to give my life to you. And she looked back at me and she said, I would like to receive that offer. In return, I'd like to give my life to you. So Heidi and I spend the last 21 years submitting to each other. We give the best of ourselves to each other so that our lives are completely intertwined. I never make a decision or make a move without Heidi as a consideration. Sometimes it's love, sometimes I'm just afraid I'm going to get caught, right? But Heidi is in the middle of, being honest, Heidi's in the middle of every one of those, of, oh, every one of those decisions. Because we have caused our lives to be independent or be interdependent. I offered a relationship, she received it. She offered a relationship, I received it. We made a choice to love. Now, Heidi, when I said, Would you marry me?, could have said, No, I don't love you. By the way, she didn't have to be a jerk about it. She didn't have to say, absolutely not. I don't believe in marriage. There's no such thing as a marriage. Besides, you're a moron. I don't believe in you and look at you. Look at you. Look at me. Look at you. Come on, really? Right? (laughs) She could have done all that and she could have done it all on Facebook. Right? (laughs) Or she could have been really nice. She could have said, you know, I'm just not ready. You know... I just have like other things I want to accomplish in my life. You know, buddy, listen, here's the deal. It's not you, it's me. (laughs) It's me. It is you in that you're like pudgy, but it's me in that I'm like shallow and can't marry, right? She could have come up with all those things, but all she was doing was making a decision to live independently of me, right? Her decision. I offered her love, she could have said no. Because when Christ comes to us and says, hey, there's a way of escape, you don't have to go to hell. You're on your way, you you set it up, not me. You don't have to go to hell, there's a way of escape. I don't have to be a jerk about it. I don't have to not believe there's a God or become a Muslim or whatever, I don't have to do that. All I have to do is make a decision. And the decision is not between heaven and hell. That's that's a very, very poor teaching. If someone says, who wants to go to heaven, who wants to go to hell, it's a terrible teaching. That's not the decision. The decision is, I'm choosing myself over God. I don't want you to control and define my life. I don't wanna give my life to you. I appreciate the offer but I'm not interested. I want to do what I want to do. I I wanna live the way that I wanna live. I wanna wanna have my life play out the way that I wanna play out. I don't want this governor of relationship in my life. So it's not that I choose to go to hell, I just choose independence and I don't have to be a jerk. I can stop by, I can visit God, I can see that there's some good qualities about God. I'm not real anti-God. I just want to live for me. Heaven and hell then are just the natural trajectory of my life playing out eternally. I, I want to be in relationship with God. Heaven, I'm in relationship with God on the deepest levels beyond comprehension forever. I want to live independently from God. God, hell is me being independent from God forever. It's the natural trajectory of my life playing out eternally. Does a loving God send people to hell? No. A loving God provides a way of escape. A loving God doesn't want anyone to perish. Look at the links that he went to to cause there to be an exit ramp. A loving God with sorrow and grief grants people the total independence from him that they have spent a lifetime asking for. What's hell like? It's torment beyond description. Who goes there? Anyone who chooses to live independently of God. See? And that trajectory of life plays out forever. Will they regret it? Oh, yeah. Will it become clear to them? Yep. So can they say they're sorry and get out? No. Today, now's the time that you set your life on that trajectory. Right? And that's why Christ came, and that's why he lived, and that's why the gospel, and that's why the church, and that's why everything, so that your eternal destiny can be changed, but it has to be done now. And guys, when we think about hell, if you ask the question, well, why does God tell us anything about hell at all? Is he tell us so that like sinners can be like, you better get your act together, you're going to fry. And, and that's usually the way that hell is talked about at churches. You better knock it off or you're going to go to hell. And, and I actually really disagree with that, to, to be honest with you. I don't think that hell is there solely as a warning for the godless. I think it functions well that way, but I don't think that's what what we should be preaching. I believe that the main reason that God tells us about hell in the scripture is to motivate the church, right? The greatest tragedy of hell is that followers of Jesus Christ don't actually passionately believe in it. I believe the greatest tragedy of hell is that those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we don't actually believe in hell that much. Now we might say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says that I get that we cognitively get it and I get that maybe you grew up with sound doctrine and good theology and you understand some things about hell, but on a practical, put skin on it, how does this affect my life every day? Most followers of Jesus don't believe in hell that deeply. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, dial in to me here for a second. Why would you say that, Jeff? Because if we actually believed in the torment and the tragedy and the misery of hell, I believe it would spawn us into action at the same levels that it caused our God to respond. When God looked at hell, His response wasn't, man, I better get some church services together. His response wasn't, well, you, you better quit smoking, drinking, and chewing. When God looked at hell, think about this. When God looked at the reality of hell, his heart was so motivated by his unyielding love that he looked at his one and only son said, would you step out of heaven, live on the planet so that all of this makes sense to them, and then willingly allow yourself to be butchered on the cross? When God looked at hell, he stopped life as he knew it. He took every resource that he had, and he gave it over so that people that he loves could know and access the way of escape. So when the church of Jesus Christ collectively then corporately looks at hell, and our response is something along the lines of, we should go to church once a week and probably quit dropping the F-bomb, it's a underwhelming response to the reality of this place. The, the idea that as a follower of Jesus, I would, I would recognize hell, respond to Christ because of it, and then my response is, "Woo, man, glad I made it. Yikes. I'll start volunteering a little bit at church. Because I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk, and I trust that you know I love you, but that is unfathomable to God. That, that would be the outcome of us knowing about hell and receiving the grace of Christ. That we would look at anyone in our lives and profess love. Yeah, my neighbor, na- you like your neighbor? Yeah, I like my neighbor. Yeah, they're great. The person you know, yeah, that guy works for like, he's a great guy my family member, my classmate, my teammate, and that the motivation, the love motivation in us is that we live better than they do and kind of get a little judgmental attitude about it, but would never tell them of the reality of hell or the enormity of God's love. The church does not exist for the sake of the church. The church exists for the sake of the world so that we, the hands and the feet of Christ, can profess the heart and the mind of Christ. And Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to straighten us all up. And what motivated that? Hell did. The greatest tragedy of hell is, is the people of God's underwhelming response, and I'm telling you guys, I'm not, I just, I'm not trying to be a jerk, I'm just trying to tell you, look at what God did and then look what we do, and that is, that is math that will not compute in the heart and the mind of God. And if that is our response as followers of Jesus Christ to hell, something is wrong in our hearts. It just doesn't make sense. So why is hell in the Bible, right? So those wicked people, eh, come on, we're all wicked. That's the whole point. Why is hell in the Bible? It's mostly there so that we are motivated by the same love our savior was motivated when he showed up for us. All right, I'm gonna ask the band to come out. As they settle in, let me just ask you these two questions, right, two questions. Here's number one. First question, is there ever been a time in your life where you, without question, have taken the way of escape. Where you looked kind of heart to heart at Jesus and said listen, I recognize who you are, your love for me, you love me, you came, you suffered, you died, you demonstrated your love. I recognize who I am, I'm a sinner, I just raised my hand and admitted it. And and that's the, having a little bit of fun, but on the deepest levels of my soul, I know that I'm a sinner. I I accept your offer of forgiveness. I accept the relationship. I choose you, right, and I want to give your life to you as, as, my life to you as you've given your life to me, right? I want to receive salvation. Guys, listen, if you have never done that, if there's not, if you can't remember it, if there's not a time in your life where you, you, on purpose, made that decision to follow Jesus, listen. I'm not trying to be a jerk, I'm just telling you what the book says. If you have never done that, you're going to go to hell. That's what's going to happen. So if you've never made that decision, I beg you to make that decision. To, To say yes to God and receive who he is and to follow him, okay? There's not a secret handshake, there's not like this magic prayer, your heart, God knows your heart so he knows what you mean. Your heart's a God's heart, make that decision and, and allow the, the trajectory of your life to shift over. That's what it means to repent. Repent just means to turn around. I'm living for me, turn around, I'm living for you, right? No more independence. Second question, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and there are people in your life who do not know about hell and do not know about Jesus and you say that you love them? Guys, there is something wrong about that that does not compute with the heart of God. God doesn't tell us about heaven and hell so we can pick a team and feel like we won. He tells us about heaven and hell so that we can realize the enormity of the reality and we can act on it like He did. Is there anybody in your life that you need to tell, don't be a jerk about it with gentleness and respect, right? Gentleness and respect. But looking at someone and saying, I love you, I've got to tell you this. That, That is the calling of the believer, right? So think about it, pray about it, and ask God to help, repent, ask forgiveness if you need to, and then open up and yield to God these invisible parts of who you are.